This week, your handy-dandy election guide ahead of Tuesday's election. What, you didn't know there was one? Well, we have you back. Also this half hour, the big clash over mask mandates in Kansas and the big clash in Missouri over voter-approved Medicaid expansion. People in this state will die if we do not expand funding for Medicaid. This is the left's overindulgence in a Robin Hood complex of constantly trying to take from those who have earned to give away to those who have not. Plus, how is the vaccine rollout working out for you? I think that the way the uh, vaccination program has been handled, it borders on criminal. Week in Review is made possible through the generous support of Dave and Jamie Cummings, Bob and Marlise Gourley, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees, and by viewers like you. Thank you. Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Haynes. A bumper-sized panel this week for a bumper-sized week of news. Checking in with us on the big screen, Fox 4 News problem solver, Linda Wager from KCMO Talk Radio, Pete Mundo, KCMO contributing reporter, Lynn Horsley, and the editor of The Call newspaper, Eric Wesson. It's election day on Tuesday during last November's presidential election. Voter turnout topped 80% in some parts of our metro. How many people will show up for next Tuesday's local elections, Eric? Uh, if we get 8%, I will be really surprised. I'm going to say between 8 and 10% of registered voters, and it won't, won't be very high in the black community. We don't really engage that much in school board races. Even though the earnest tax is on there, I think most people think it's a done deal. So they don't see any reason to vote for it or against it. But Linda, this is actually the sort of building blocks of our democracy, these sort of school board and city council races and these local election issues. Yet most members of our crew here weren't even aware that there was an election. How can that be? It's, it's it's very besides that little card you get in the mail it is a you know there's not a lot of advertising these are low budget races and um yeah people aren't aware of it now i should point out that if you live in kansas local election races were moved by state law to the november ballot so you have nothing to decide next week but you do have a major stake in the outcome on the ballot tuesday is the one percent earnings tax that anyone who works in kansas city missouri has to pay even if you just commute into the city from lenexa leewood or lee summit this is a sizable amount of money what does kansas city do with it lynn well this is a huge part of kansas city's budget it's about uh, 270 million dollars it's um uh goes for police and fire ambulance trash collection there is a portion of the earnings tax that's earmarked for road maintenance it's really basic services in the past uh Pete Mundo, we've had lots of debates even on this program with opponents of the tax and you'd get a lot of mailers against the tax where are the opponents they don't exist, Nick. That's why this thing's going to pass with flying colors. There were some rumblings I heard that maybe if the Fraternal Order of Police got annoyed enough with the city council, they would campaign against it. But even they knew that this would impact them drastically uh, without the earnings tax as the city set up right now. So they've been quiet on it. Everybody's been relatively quiet on it on the opposition side of this. Only Heather Hall of the Northland has said that she won't advocate for or against it. And that's the most opposition that there is of note. So uh, the thing's going to pass with flying colors. Voter turnout will be low. And just to add to Eric's point as well, it is disappointing that after the past year, we have learned that our local city council officials and our school boards play a huge role in our day-to-day -day lives. 
and the fact that after this past year, we can't get a decent turnout, which we probably won't for, for uh, the election on Tuesday, is, uh, is to me very disappointing when we know that these people impact our lives oftentimes more than who's in the White House. You know, Heather Hall, as you mentioned, the city councilwoman said she's not going to be opposed to it, uh, uh, but she would like to see the city come up with a plan to actually find a source of revenue beyond the earnings tax. Uh, what, what types of sources of revenue might be available to the city, um, Lynn Horsley? And wouldn't they have a lot of time to do this? Because I see by state law, if this does not get passed on Tuesday, it only goes down 0.1% a year until it gets to zero. So the city would have 10 years to come up with a solution, an alternative to this funding. Well, that's true. It would phase out over a 10-year period, but it's still a huge, such a huge part of the revenues. I think the finance department has calculated that they would have to double the sales tax or more than triple the property tax. Other cities pay uh, for their uh, services through tourism taxes or oil and gas revenues. But Kansas City doesn't have that, uh, you know, huge uh, source of funding. And so there, there is not an easy alternative. Uh, this is a tax that's been 1% since 1970. Uh, and the city has just learned to rely heavily on it. You know, I think that the basic services would uh, suffer greatly if the tax did go away, even phased out over 10 years. And um, the Kansas City already has trouble providing basic services that meet citizen satisfaction levels. So um, I, I just don't think that the opponents have a good alternative. Has this pandemic, though, shown the limits of this kind of tax, Eric Wesson? Because a lot of people this year, thousands in fact, are now asking for rebates because they weren't even coming into Kansas City. Uh, they were working from home. What are the implications to the city of that? Well, they have to refund that money. And I think uh, some of the refund money will come from the government's uh, COVID relief package that they're going to send the $190 million. I think they'll take a portion of that to refund people their money back. But let me say this. I think that uh, one of the things that we've learned through the pandemic is it's changed the way that we think and do business, not only in Kansas City, but nationally. So I look for a lot of people to remain working from home uh, in other areas because now we've proven that it could be done and we could do it successfully. So I don't think it's going to always be an issue from now on. Lynn. Well, yes, and that is true. It's about nearly half of the tax is paid by non-residents. And that's why this is an easy vote for Kansas City residents. They, they're they're going to vote for it. The non-residents don't get a vote. Um, but yes, over time, Nick, you're absolutely right. The economy is changing. The earnings tax may not generate the huge level of funding it has for the, for the city. And, and that may kind of go to the point that the opponents are making. They think the earnings tax leads to a bloated bureaucracy, and they want the city to exercise more fiscal discipline. Well, if the, if the earnings tax is gradually eroded away, to some extent, it will impose that fiscal discipline on the city. Pete, is this becoming a little bit like the gas tax, where people have electric vehicles in other ways, uh, where they're not even paying the gas tax anymore? Uh, if this goes on and more people are going to be working from home, you even see H&R Block, for instance, permanently saying employees only have to come in now three days a week, Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays. Is this going to be a permanent problem for this tax? 
Absolutely. And that's why, you know, Mayor Lucas was down in Jeff City this week and he was meeting with lawmakers. Uh, his preference is, is that this is on the ballot every 10 years and that's that's fine. It won't go away. It will pass. But the bigger issue then is where are you making up these revenues? I mean, one place to do it that I think is a bipartisan issue would actually be to lessen the developer giveaways that this town does and create a more tax friendly environment in that process as well. Uh, there seems to be support across the board for that. The question is how much and then you're getting some of these tax dollars back into your coffers. You know, voters will also be picking candidates in scores of city council and school board races in dozens of cities. Four seats on the Kansas City-Missouri school board are up for grabs. It's been a while since the district was in the headlines. What's at stake in this election, Eric? Uh, control of the school board, whether or not uh, the board, the complexion of the board changes, where you have uh, somebody on the board that's pro-charter schools. Uh, school Smart KC has put a tremendous amount of money in this school board election. I think this might be one of the highest ever. Uh, last count that I heard this morning was about $100,000 has gone into a volunteer position. But the goal is to change and take some of the vacant schools that Kansas City Public Schools aren't using, take those buildings, turn them into charter schools. And ultimately, Nick, it could be a situation where public schools, as we know it, might be a thing of the past. So it's very, very important that people pay attention and get out and vote. And Linda Wager, you know, that's the issue because, you, as Pete, as Pete Mundo mentioned, you know, these local positions have been so critical during this pandemic year. You know, who is on your school board may have decided, for instance, whether you were in school with your children or they were what have been taught via a computer screen. Yeah, I mean, local, you know, local elections are, are always important and, and, and too often they're overlooked. But, you know, I mean, I think it's important to remember with the school board is that even charter schools are public schools. So it's going to change, you know, it may change how a school district looks, but you're still sending children to public schools that are funded by, by taxpayers and they're getting a public education. You haven't all of a sudden gone to a private uh, you're not you're not funding a private school. You're funding a public school, and I think there's a lot of importance too that um, people look at these Kansas, Kansas City School Board members and look: Are they willing to work together with the you know with the regular the schools in the district and then the charter schools because that's so much of that's so much of who we are today. Eric, uh, one of the things that I do want to let people know. Kansas City Public Schools are on the cusp of getting full accreditation. And if you really stop and think about it, uh, Dr. Bedell has been there, you know, almost longer than any superintendent that we've had in quite a while. You have stability, there's no adversarial positions on the board. It's like everybody's working together toward what's in the best interest of the schools and the kids themselves. So it's been pretty successful. You don't turn on the news and see a bunch of foolishness going on with the school district. So yeah, it seems to be working well. And it is amazing in that way, Lynn, because you used to be the school board reporter. I mean, it was a front page news story, it seemed, every single week. It would top uh, the news, uh, uh, news television news stations. Yeah, you don't hear about it as much anymore. That's absolutely true. I was just thinking about that as Eric was talking. I covered a circus. It was a round-the-clock circus. And it really wasn't so much about the schools. It was about the fighting between the board members and the superintendent. And there was a revolving door of superintendents. That has been a very refreshing development in recent years. 
uh, a school board that appears to work well together. They appear to work well with the superintendent. There's been stability in the administrative ranks. And so as citizens consider their votes, that really might be something to keep in mind. Now, if you live in Kansas, it no longer mattered this week how old you are, what you do for a living, or your medical history. If you want the COVID vaccine, you are now eligible. Kansas Governor Laura Kelly says she's putting her foot on the accelerator now that the state has been promised large new shipments of the vaccine, and amid concerns that some counties don't have anyone left to vaccinate. We'll tell that, of course, to people around here where there are still long waiting lists. On Friday of next week, every Missourian who wants it can also get it. But there's a big difference between being eligible and having access to the vaccine, Linda Wager. When do our local health leaders think the supply will finally outstrip the demand? Yeah, I don't know when they think it will, but I, but I know that there's a lot of frustration. We did, I did a story just a couple of weeks ago about the people that were signed up for, you know, with Missouri to get this vaccine, and then they get the, the um, email telling them where to go, and they're being sent two and a half hours away. I mean, two and a half hours away. That, that was one of the choices. The other one was, an, the closest one to this one woman was an hour and a half away. And she was, you know, over the age of 70, and she, she didn't, you know, have, she had the resources, she said, to actually be able to drive that far, but a lot of people don't. And those were the choices. And so now, you know, Kansas City's tried to respond to that by saying, if you're over the age, of, if you're 65 or older, you can call 311 and they'll try and connect you to where your closest vaccine is. But I mean, but there's a lot of um, bad, I mean, I don't know what they're doing at the state level, but they seem like they have an oversupply of vaccine in places down by Arkansas, parts of Missouri that, that, that border Arkansas, that they have a lot of vaccine in Sedalia, and yet they don't seem to have very much in Kansas City. Yeah, and people are traveling a lot of distance. Did you see this week, by the way, a Missouri man who drove six hours round trip to get his vaccine, he shot, um, sent Governor Mike Parson a bill for all the mileage. Honestly, in my personal, humble, layman's opinion, I think that the way the uh, vaccination program has been handled, it borders on criminal. To hear Governor Parsons say, you know, we messed up. Oops. That was Missourian Michael Meredith submitting a $121 bill to the state for travel expenses. What happens if we all do that, Lynn Horsley? Well, I was just going to say there's a Twitter uh, message that you can get now, Kansas City Vaccine Watch. But, you know, they'll advertise you can go on and make an appointment at this Walgreens or at this grocery store. And then six minutes later, all the vaccine appointments are filled. So it shows that there's huge demand in the urban areas. But the issue there, though, also is the fact that you have to be really technically savvy, have a smartphone, be living on it and have the time to do that, Eric Wesson, to be able to take advantage of this. Yeah, and most people in the urban core that are elderly don't have that. They don't have smartphones. They don't have computers. So for them to get in the process or get in the mix, most of the time, they have to call 311. Nobody calls them back. Then they call Swope. Then they call Samuel Rogers. Then when the appointment time comes, what you have is a bunch of uh, of vows of the vaccine that nobody came and got because they went and got it somewhere else. So it's an ongoing uh, issue here in the urban core. There have been studies, Pete Mundo, that say that states that have been more methodical, staggered the distribution of the vaccine to specific groups, have actually done a better job 
than those who are now just letting it be available to everyone so swiftly. So wh why is this happening? Uh, and certainly in Kansas, what was the push for Governor Laura Kelly to make this available so quickly? Uh, was politics involved in that, in your estimation? Well, it was, Nick, because if you recall, uh, places in the central part of Kansas, they were ready to move on to different phases. I mean, they were they had the supply available. They were ready to do it. And the governor said, hold on. No, 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 no. We got to wait for the rest of the state to catch up. Uh, that got a lot of political blowback because it was seen to me, if you got the supply to move on, uh, counties should be able to move on if they've got that supply sitting there. It might get a little messy, but the whole thing has been messy. Uh, let's be honest. I mean, you know, when you're factoring this thing based on who's essential, who's not, versus simply going down the food chain based on age, which to me would have made the most sense, and some states have done that and have had success doing that, it's going to be clunky. Uh, it has been clunky from the get-go. It seems like things are getting better. And I will note Missouri, about 60% of the vaccine distributions have been to the Kansas City and St. Louis regions. It seems to me you have an oversupply in some of the rural areas, and that might be more driven by demand in these parts of the state versus necessarily an oversupply. This week, Shawnee County, home of the city of Topeka, is now allowing businesses and churches to no longer require face masks. Last week, St. Joseph, Missouri, voted to remove its mask mandate. So did Sedgwick County, home of the city of Wichita. This week, Governor Laura Kelly extending the statewide mask main mandate. But does that make any difference? As we tape the show, Republican legislative leaders vowing to overturn it. If that happens, that means there's no longer a mask mandate in the state of Kansas, Linda? Yeah, I mean, you know, you really wonder how this is going to impact people who, you know, I look at myself and I look at a lot of people, you know, I'm over the age of 50 and and just the, the comfort level that people have in going out where people aren't wearing masks and that if you, if, you know, if businesses now can get rid of them, um, are people, are they really going to get these customers who they think are staying home. Um, you know, we looked at the very beginning of this whole pandemic and we went, I went to a town, a small town in Missouri where they hadn't um, done any kind of mass mandate. They hadn't, there was no mandate in place there yet. And people just weren't there. People weren't shopping, you know. And if you see numbers start going back up again, because it's been scientifically proven that mass work, then you're gonna see business drop off again for a lot of these businesses. So it seems counterintuitive to be uh, getting rid of a mass mandate. Are we just shifting, though, the responsibility now, if we do this, to private businesses? And, and by and large, Eric Wesson, the lowest paid workers who are now going to have to be policing um, the mask issues and even the vaccine, for that matter. Yeah, and, you know, Mayor Lucas hasn't gotten into a position where he's relaxed it. I think people are still trying to do the two-mask thing. Uh, with that, but I think if you get into a situation here, some people in the Westport area, maybe the Plaza area, maybe those areas are think that it's not, they don't have to wear a mask anymore. And I think a lot of people are saying, well, I got a vaccine, I don't have to wear a mask anymore. But, you know, we don't know exactly what that's going to do. So you wind up in a situation like that where you get increasing numbers again. And now where we're going with the increase is spring break. Kids are moving out of college. They're moving around. They're not wearing masks. They're not social distancing. So it's kind of an up and down situation with it. Lynn. Uh, I heard an analogy. Someone was saying it's important not to spike the ball on the five yard line. You know, we are getting better. We're getting closer. More people are getting vaccinated. The, the virus is coming under control. But 
we don't want to declare victory prematurely. And with these new variants, it's still the advice, I think, for most health officials to stay cautious. Hasn't the frustration for many people, though, Pete Mundo, been the, the fact that there's been a view that we've been changing the goalpost? It was flattening the curve to begin with. Uh, then we wanted to make sure that we were protecting our healthcare workers and not overwhelming hospitals. And then when the vaccine became available, we could go back to normal. But none of those things are actually happening. Uh, yeah, they're, they're not. Um, it seems to be, you know, two weeks flat in the curve is now on week uh, 56, give or take a week. And, um, you know, we have, uh, that doesn't mean that people necessarily should be reckless and everyone's allowed to choose what their comfort level is. But I will note we're about a month into reopening the states of, uh, of Texas and Mississippi who did drop their mask mandates and they have seen cases and deaths uh, go down if not stay stable. So there's something to be said for people looking around the country and saying, all right, is it seasonal? Do we have those vaccines getting out at the pace we need them to get out at where there's there's serious success going on? And, uh, you know, I'll note, too, it's it's opening day. We've got the baseball season getting underway. And um, I know a lot of people are looking forward to that. And some stadiums are going to be at least 50 percent full. So we'll just kind of see how that that plays out and, and what that means going forward. Last year, Missouri voters approved expanding the state's Medicaid program to provide health care coverage to around 275,000 low-income residents. But a state lawmaker is about to scuttle the measure by refusing to fund it. People in this state will die if we do not expand funding for Medicaid. This is the left's overindulgence in a Robin Hood complex of constantly trying to take from those who have earned to give away to those who have not. So what are we to make of that? Is this a largely symbolic move, Linda Wager, or a concerted effort to undo the wishes of Missouri voters? They're saying it's, it's a symbolic move, but and, and you, you really got to assume that there's going to be a court challenge if for some reason this goes forward, because, I mean, this is part of the Constitution now. And so you really you shouldn't be able to scuttle what, what you've put in the con what voters have decided to put in the Constitution. And, you know, and what, the one statistic that always just amazes me about Missouri, because it has this, you know, it's, it's the worst in the country as far as um, who it covers on Medicaid and a mother right, currently the way the system's set up right now. A mother with two children who works only two, 10 hours a week would not makes too much money to qualify for Medicaid in Missouri. So, I mean, and this, you know, this would, would change it, put, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people um, on, on, the Medi on the Medicaid rolls and be a boon for um, rural hospitals. And it would also save the state. I mean, what, what, what experts have shown is that it will also save the state a lot of money um, that they're currently putting into these state programs um, to try to help people, um, you know, just get basic care. The state of Maine a few years ago, Pete Mundo, uh, also voted for Medicaid expansion. The governor there resisted it for many years until a new governor came in very recently and is now enacting it again. But what, what is the main objection here to funding it once the voters have said yes to this? Well, it's it's um, it's politics. There, there's no doubt about it. It's a, a disagreement with the voters on it. It's some and maybe the wording of of uh, you know what was on the ballot at the time that some people claim they were possibly confused by. But the reality is, uh, the people spoke. I don't believe there's going to be a way around it. It would be a bad look for the Missouri GOP to uh, continue to fight it, even if they have uh, fair concerns about what the the cost will ultimately be to the state, which is something that you've seen. A lot of these states are told the cost will be X. It is X plus a lot more after this gets implemented. But once again, I really don't see how they get around it. 
Lynn, it's interesting, you know, we focus on the Missouri legislature and there have been concerns about, you know, their Clean Missouri was passed and then they tried to remove that with a different bill. And over the years there was the puppy mill bill and then they reversed that. But it happens in other places too. And I remember at City Hall, you know, Clay Chastain had a light rail plan back in 2006 that voters approved. And yet City Hall said, no, this is unfeasible. There's no money uh, it, that was put in the plan to fund it. So we're going to reject it. We're not going to implement it. Is that the same thing? Well, not exactly. Although you are correct, voters approved Clay Chastain's pipe dream of a light rail plan. It was hugely expensive. There were also legal uh, challenges to implementing his plan. It, that was a one-man crusade. And the council did rather grudgingly look at how to implement it. And, and over time came to the conclusion that not only was it not uh, financially feasible, but there were so many legal and regulatory hurdles. So Chastain sued. He did uh, go to the courts to try to force the city to implement his plan. And the courts decided uh, both at the uh, judicial level and the appellate level that no, it was not feasible and that the city council was in its rights to overturn Chastain's initiative. Now, with the case of Medicaid, this is, uh, you know, 37 other states have done this. This isn't a one-man crusade. This is something that many other states have done. And um, so there is precedence for it. And I, I agree with Pete. I think in this case, the burden is on the legislature to show that they're you know, that they're just not going to do it. I think they, they will face a, an uphill battle at the courts. Sometimes in the media, we want to create this sense of discord and outrage, uh, Eric Wesson. But how will this play out? The governor of Missouri has already said he's wanting to implement this plan. Uh, after all of the loud noise and indignation, uh, is this finally going to be approved? I believe it will. I think it's not going to be just a given, but I think that... You know, the voters have spoken, and this is what people need, and it's good. And it's what, 100 or 200,000 people can be put on those rolls for, for their needs. So I think eventually somebody will wise up and say, let's get this done so it'll just go away. Because this has been going on for, well, I know, probably about at least a decade. And so voters finally said, hey, pass it. Let's get this over with and move on. And we're still at square one. And, of course, Kansas still hasn't done that, of course, as one of those states that Lynn says hasn't introduced um, uh, Medicaid expansion. As a former State House reporter, I understand any lawmaker can introduce a bill. It doesn't mean it's actually going anywhere. But in this week in which we mark Transgender Visibility Day in Kansas, a measure blocking transgender athletes from girls' sports is gaining momentum. The Kansas Senate recently approved the bill. It's now being debated in the Kansas House. The ACLU is threatening to sue the state if it's enacted. In other states where similar measures are being pursued, sports organizations like the NCAA are threatening boycotts. And, of course, we still don't know what Governor Laura Kelly will do. Can I assume she will veto the bill? Pete? Yes. Uh, the question then is, are there the votes to override her veto, which there are pieces of legislation where there is, uh, there are enough votes to override potential bills that the governor uh, may end up vetoing. I don't know in this case if there are. My hunch would be that there are. I, I, this seems to me like a, an issue in particular that would get overwhelming support that Governor Kelly's veto would be overridden on this specific issue. You know, Missouri, by the way, is also tackling this issue. Uh, they are considering a constitutional amendment, Linda. Uh, um, 
that they wanted you to vote on next year, if this were put on the ballot, what would be the prospects of passage of that? <laughs> I don't really have a good idea for that, but I would, um, I would assume it might pass. Um, but you know, yeah, I, I think the, the bigger question that I have with, with all these issues, and it's the same with the bathroom bill, is that how big of a problem is this? I mean, how have we seen a lot of uh, transgender children that have tried to um, join sports teams in Missouri and Kansas? I mean, is this a big issue? And, and you kind of wonder why is the focus on this issue when there are so many more compelling problems out there that we really should be dealing with. And it, it, it's, it's concerning for observers of the state house that so much time is spent on issues that don't appear to affect any of us. Why is it such a big issue, Eric? Uh, because the, those groups, LGBT groups, are mobilizing and realizing their voting powers, and politicians that are career politicians want to say, well, let me appease this group of people so that I can attract their votes. It's purely political. I, you know, I don't know why, like, like she said, why this is even a topic with so many other things going on in our states, why this is even a topic that they would spend time trying to deal with. But if you put this on the ballot in Missouri, as this constitutional amendment would suggest, don't you think it would pass? You know. You don't? <laughs> I don't know. You know, it just depends on what ballot it's on and how people feel that morning when they wake up. You know, there's some things that I've seen that I thought would fail, pass, and there are some things that I thought would pass, fail. So it just depends. Missouri voters are very ticky, so to speak. Uh, Pete, you know, when you think about we have races, big races going on in the Senate in Kansas and Missouri next year, governor's races, along with uh, gun issues, the immigration issue on the border, and transgender issues, don't you think that's going to be one of the, th the three, or am I wrong on that? I, I'm not sure, Nick, but I think that the premise that this just uh, kind of popped up out of the blue for, for politics on both sides. Let's not forget that uh, President Biden did sign an executive order his first or second day in office that basically would, if you did not allow transgender girls to compete against girls in sports, you could potentially lose your federal funding. So that's that's where this all kind of picked up a lot of steam the last couple of months. There's no doubt there's a political angle to this as well that can be capitalized on by, by people on both sides of the aisle. But that's where it picked up steam on the, on the uh, Republican side of things. And that's what kind of started the snowball effect, which was this executive order. Now, when you put a program like this together every week, you can't get to every story making the headlines. What was the big local story we missed? The man behind Kansas City's Jewish Community Center shootings now appealing his death sentence. Hundreds gather at several anti-Asian hate rallies around the metro. Some called her a living saint, remembering Operation Breakthrough co-founder Sister Corita. A new state law forces every school in Kansas to reopen this week. And baseball is back, the Royals hosting its home opener in front of 10,000 fans. Okay, Eric Wesson, was it one of those stories or something completely different? Something completely different, and I will say it was the assault charges that were brought forth 
against Councilman Brandon Ellington uh, on Wednesday. I think that probably that's one of those popcorn and Coke and just sit back and watch this thing unfold. And it was coupled on top of allegations that he had on Facebook about having some speed bumps put in front of his house with Payak money, the whistleblower, uh, got a sunshine request and like, hey, we don't have sidewalks and curbs in our neighborhood, but now we got two speed bumps that nobody in the neighborhood wanted. So I just think the Brandon Ellington situation will unfold but, but very he, yeah, dramatically. But he, didn't he say, though, he had done nothing and he was only a poking of the chest, if that? Right, okay. right, right. He said he didn't even poke him in the chest. He okay. didn't do anything. Lynn. Well, we touched on this briefly, Nick, uh, the importance of local elections. I live in the Northland, and there's very little coverage of the elections, but we've got important school board races up here, a health trustee race, hot and heavy. Um, nobody used to play, pay any attention to the Platte County Health Department, but now we sure do. Uh, the Parkville City Council uh, is has important races that could determine the development of a riverfront park where there's a fierce debate going on. So I just want to give a shout out to all the people running for office in these local elections. I regret that they don't get the attention, they don't get the voters, uh, but really uh, people do need to be paying attention. This is where the rubber meets the road. This, These are the matters that really affect us in our daily lives. And I would encourage people to familiarize themselves on the Missouri side with the April 6th election. It's important. Now you've said all of that, I'm predicting very large long lines going to polling stations in the Northland, Lynn. So <laughs> give an extra bit of time before preparing yourself to go to the ballot box on Tuesday. Linda Wager. Let me um, second uh, what Lynn just said, just about the importance of local elections. And that, you know, there's, I have a great um, admiration to anybody who would tackle a lot of these jobs, <laughs> because I, I, you know, just the enormous amount of headache that, that's involved in, and the pushback that you get from from the public. So, um, you know, hats off to anybody who's running. That is a great point. I have happened to be at a restaurant, and I ran into Lee Barnes on the city council. And I said, "Thank you for your service." As part of that conversation, his wife just looked at me. What service? Okay. So, you, you know, you, you get it in all directions when you're in elected office. Uh, and Pete Mundo. Well, I'll end it on a, a lighter note there, Nick. And let's let's talk about the fact that uh, baseball is back opening day uh, this past week. And, it, you know, we didn't have it last year, obviously. And, and these uh, pressure valves, releasing these pressure valves in, in ways like sporting events and, um, and concerts and things of that ilk. 10,000 people going to be at the K in April. That number will hopefully go up. The season goes on. And I'll take the over on the 72 wins as well. And on that, we will say our week has been reviewed. Thank you, Linda Wager from Fox 4 News, Eric Wesson from The Call, KCUR contributing reporter Lynn Horsley, and 6 to 10 weekdays on KCMO Talk Radio, Pete Mundo. And I'm Nick Haynes from all of us here at Kansas City PBS. Keep calm and carry on.